Bye. Hello and welcome to Messages and Methods. I'm your host with the most, Shelly Carney. Tonight we'll be talking about how to be an excellent guest and who some of our favorite guests were and why. If you are in your 50s or older, we've got something in common. Do you want to produce a live stream, podcast, and blog to expand your brand and business? Or would you like to come visit with us, tell us your story, and share your message with the world? Come experience Messages and Methods live stream podcast with Shelly Carney and Toby Eunice. Every week, we come together to discuss topics related to encore entrepreneurs, content marketing, live streaming video, and podcasting. We share stories, experience, and knowledge to help others in their journey to making the world a better place. Subscribe today and become a part of our treasured community. All right. We Back to you. Started some questions for you. Number one, who is your favorite, most memorable guest interview and why? Oh, that's where we're, we're starting with Q&A? Yeah. Uh, most memorable. The most memorable. So this is going to sound strange. I'm still waiting. <laughs> yes. What? Who? Well, the most um, memorable was a general that I interviewed during the in 1995 during the wars in Bosnia. And it was memorable because as I was going through my interviews, this was done on behalf of the uh, of uh, one of the agencies in the intelligence community. And the reason that made it was so memorable is I was in a in a war torn room office, um, because it it was you know a war zone, and uh, I was interviewing him, and the expectation uh, was eventually, and I was recording him, video recording him. And the expectation was that they would eventually, and they did, use part of these interviews, the interviews that I did uh, on that, um, I don't want to call it a mission, on that project, uh, against them during the War Crimes Tribunal. Um, anyway, I got to the point where I was asking him questions regarding a uh, Serbian community that he and his uh, militia had invaded and he didn't like the question. Um, and he said he didn't want to answer it. So he said, change, ch give me another question, change the question. And I said, I can't do that. I need an answer to this one. And um, so I asked him a second time. And he said, no, you don't understand, change the question. And uh, so I asked him a, a third time. And he nodded his head to uh, one of his bodyguards that was behind me, and the bodyguard took out a nine millimeter pistol and put it against the, the top of my head. And he said, Change the question. And I asked it a fourth time. And he started laughing. And he said, You Americans, you're all crazy. I just need an answer to the question, I said. That was the most memorable interview I ever did. Yeah. That would be memorable. But more recently, um, we had a member, uh, an interview that we did with uh, Manny Cabo. 
Manny is a encore entrepreneur, legacy live streamer. He's a podcaster. He's a live streamer. And, um, when he was 46, he's just, he's 52 now. When he was 46, he entered the competition on The Voice and he got four positive votes for turn, chair turnarounds. I don't know what it is at age 46, singing a song. And I, I can't remember the song. I just remember thinking to myself, that is White Snake. Right? Why, that thing by White Snake. I, again, I can't remember the name Here of it. Here I go again. No. Here I go again. Whatever it was, my response to listening like to it was that, that's iconic. Like, like you picked a song that everybody is going to know whether you're doing it right or not because mm. it's that well known. Mm -hmm. You know, it's he part has of a lot the, of talent. So he he does no have a lot of talent. And then, and then he went on to tell us the story of uh, of uh, going on to the uh, Spanish version of the voice La Voz and doing the same thing, mm -hmm. except this time he sung a song. Uh, in Spanish, but that interview was great because he was a, such a great guest. He came prepared. He came knowledgeable. He had uh, answers for all the questions. He didn't stumble through them. He didn't debate us. He didn't. It wasn't argumentative. He he almost. I, I could almost tell that he was enjoy, enjoying the questions that we were asking. And it was interesting because that was the night I just decided to test a new theory of interviewing, uh, uh, going from the 10 hero's journey questions, you know, that gives the, the interview subject the opportunity to tell their hero's journey. Instead, I used something that I was kind of working on uh, called the inflection point. And for him, the inflection point was at night on The Voice. And so I could use that as a basis. And I started with that. And then I asked him to tell me about his life before the inflection point, after the inflection point, and what happens from here forward. So it's basically, although there were lots of other questions, we asked him follow-on questions, but it's basically a four-question interview. What's the inflection point? What was your life before that? What was your life since then? And what's your life from this point forward? So it's a lot of fun. And that's, I think, for that reason, not only was he a great guest, but because we tried out something completely new with him, and it, and it went swimmingly. So apparently that was an inflection point. It was an inflection point for me. Actually, now that you mention it, it was indeed an inflection point for me in my interview style, because up until that point, after year, well, you've got to remember that it took me years to get to the point where I was comfortable starting with the 10 heroes journey questions for an interview, a documentary interview. So that, that was, there was a period of development associated with that because I didn't like going in blind and I didn't like the standard journalism questions. I wanted to do something different. I wanted them to tell their story. And I realized then, as I do now, that the most interesting story is the hero's journey and everybody has a hero's journey to, story to tell. Uh -huh. So that's what I used for pretty much 35 years up until that night with Manny Cabo. Mm -hmm. And I, I, cha I changed. Now tell us a little Proving. bit about some of the interviews you did when you uh, were interviewing people on the uh, the Ed Gypsy's Kiss uh, about their forest fin adventure and specifically uh, John Wayne Bobbitt. So John Wayne was interesting because he he already had a story, mm -hmm. right? Um, and his story was based on the fact that he had that moment back in the 1990s when I happened to be living in Virginia. I mean, it was big news in Northern Virginia uh, where he had that moment with his uh, now estranged wife. And that's kind of what his life was built around. Mm 
mm-hmm. uh, that from that point forward, including the, all the other things that he did in addition to that. And what I found out about John Wayne Bobbitt is that if you if you help him to move away from that conversation, because his expectation is you want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's what everybody wants to talk about. That was his inflection point. That was his inflection point. And, and people believe that was the only point. Uh, that's the point at which his story was made. Mm-hmm. Right. Up until that time, he was just an ex-Marine. What I found out about him is that uh, uh, two, two additional personalities. One was the personality that was associated with hunting with the, the, for the forest and treasure committed treasure hunter, his own rationale, his own thoughts, his own plans, all related to finding the forest and treasure and truly believing down deep in his heart that he knew precisely where it was to the extent that he would call me on his cell phone from the mountains of Colorado, somehow finding a, a cell tower that was usable to tell me what he was doing. You know, that he was, that's how committed he was. And that's how, how, he, he, how he understood that I was committed to his story. So that was the second personality. That was the non-news John Bobbitt, right? Then there was a third John Bobbitt, and it was a a very almost, uh, and he is much younger than I am, for, for, for starters, but it was almost like a naive, uh, young John Bobbitt who, who had experienced a certain kind of life, but it wasn't a life that helped you develop into a strong, healthy male, right? I had the benefit of that. And so there was a part of me that was very open to the idea that I had to treat him like a son. He said that was kind of the relationship that evolved over time. Like I I felt like I was, I remember sitting at dinner with him one night, we were at uh, the range over there Mm -hmm. uh, off I-40 and, um, and, um, Real grand. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to him and thinking to myself, this is like talking to one of my sons who I need to give not treasure hunting advice, not, not documentary making advice, but just advice in life. And so it always made for an interesting conversation with him. And I, and I just heard from him a couple of days ago. He sent me a text message about something that, that he wanted to talk about. He's still, you know, in the mm-hmm. fen. So it's kind of cool thing. when you can stay in touch with people that you've interviewed. I th- I think I think part of, uh, you know, from from the stories about sentient selling, where you and I have talked about, the more you listen to someone, the more that someone becomes attached to you, right? I see we have someone to listen to and oh, chat got some here. comments. It might be Brian telling us, "Hey, Che, um, who's Forrest Finn? Yeah, he's the guy that's not here anymore." Very thoughtful presentation, says Dale. Thank you, Dale. We appreciate that. Very kind of you to say that. Um, so those are the ones. Uh, those are the ones that I enjoyed the most. Um, uh, you you learn something in almost every interview, especially if you're in a topical area. I mean, uh, for example, the documentary that I did with uh, Janet Bridgers, uh, "Stories of the Spill" and uh, the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill. I didn't know any. I knew about the environmental movement. And I was a practitioner, you know, I have that blue trash can where I throw all my recyclables, but I didn't (laughs) know anything about that instance, right? Mm -hmm. By the time I had done the 25, 30 interviews that we did, I was an expert at the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill and Mm -hmm. what, what, how it impacted the, not only California, 
in the Proposition 20, uh, the, the California Coastal Protection Act, but how it affected the rest of the United States and the environmental movement from that point forward. I also discovered that uh, in terms of environmental activism, believe it or not, Richard M. Nixon, for his own purposes, because he was in a competitive race with, uh, uh, um, I want to say Elon Musk, but it was, <laughs> what, what was it? Musky. Musky, I can't remember. He's from Minnesota. Mm. Um Nope. Uh, that uh, that Richard Nixon was probably the most environmentally active president uh, in our history, up right up until now. So, do you have a question? John Miller says, "Got to run now, but the family will see you tomorrow evening." <laughs> oh, John! Thank you, John, for Thank that you. nice super chat. I guess I should mention that the super chat light is lit. If you feel like contributing to our little cha-ching. project here. Uh, just go down to the bottom of the chat window. You'll see a stylized but grayed out dollar sign and uh, YouTube will walk you through making a, a contribution and we'll give you one of these. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, John. That was very, that was very kind of you and thoughtful. Thank you for that. So, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of memorable uh, uh, interviews and I always felt it was rare that I felt like I was walking away from an interview without having somehow made additional connections mm-hmm. with that, you know, and, and invariably you eventually hear from them again for whatever, uh, whatever reasons. And that was, you know, 30, 35 years of doing them on behalf of the federal government. And then another, what has it been 10 years of uh, not doing anything for the federal government, but making, you know, these the documentaries that we made uh, during that period or the shows that we developed, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, that we developed using that same strategy. So uh, for me, it was, uh, it was that kind of memorable. Yeah. And for you. Oh, I think the, the really cool thing about it is it's such a learning experience when you, uh, any podcast host will tell you that once they, open up a podcast on a particular topic, they then learn so much about that topic because as they interview experts and people who come in with their own knowledge and their own experiences, that all of that uh, is gathered up by the podcast host, the interviewer, Mm -hmm. uh, and they become the expert because Mm -hmm. they've spoken to so many other experts and, uh, collated all of that knowledge. I, I think that's one of the benefits of using curated. the, the curated. <laughs> uh, I think that archived and curated or curated and archived. Um, I think that's one of the benefits of doing the interview style podcast or live stream is that if you, uh, if you're dependent upon a particular topic, you can't, if, if you're knowledgeable enough to ask the right questions, you, nothing, mm-hmm. if, if nothing else happens, you will get smarter about that topic, uh, the benefit of talking to those other people. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because it it's easy to become an expert. And the point that I'll make is that um, in the second part of my career in Washington, uh, as I was moving further and further away from the, the, you know, going overseas a lot and trying to do more business inside the Washington metro area, I, I developed a product in white papers and case studies for government contractors. And I use the same strategy. I, I would say, give me the 10 people, 10 of the people that worked on the project. I would ask them 10 questions mm-hmm. and 
Um, and by the end of it, I would have enough information to write a case study or white paper that they had to make very minor modifications. It was always up, you know, they had the, the right to make whatever changes they want. But I learned about topics, everything from, you know, the Vulcan 20 millimeter machine gun to all the changes made to the Bell helicopter, uh, the Huey helicopter, which was Vietnam era helicopter, but they were trying to bring it up to date. And, um, and, uh, they they had needed a white paper to explain all the changes they wanted to make to it. Mm -hmm. And so I became an expert, not only because I had flown in them in Vietnam, but now I was an expert in all these modernization things. They didn't get the contract. They decided to go with a new helicopter mm -hmm. instead of the old one. So that's how we ended up with a Black Hawk. Well, and a lot of coaches and consultants uh, end up, they either write a book or they go on speaking tours because they gather up stories from all the people they've worked with. So then they can, uh, they can, you know, give a really great keynote speech or they can write a book on the topic because they've worked with so many people who are experts in that one topic or field. And, and that's kind of what happens. A lot of journalists end up doing that. The, the, the prime example that I'm that whose book I own is Katie Turr's book on uh, the the um, a campaign of Donald Trump. Up until that time, she was a mid-level traveling journalist who they who MSNBC, NBC said, okay, you've got the Trump campaign. Well, she was so good at what she did, including getting several interviews with Donald Trump, that by the end of it, she was able to write her first book that became a New York Times bestseller. Um, so... It, it, just the fact that you're focused on a particular area and if you have any kind of commitment to it at all, you're going to learn enough to write a book. And, and again, I'll use my example of Studs Terkel, who spent a career um, and, and the, the story begins in Chicago back in the 50s when uh, the radio station that he was working for bought one of the then new Wallensack portable tape recorders. And, and, you know, we think of portable tape recorders as the same size as our, well, you've got a, the ability to record uh, on your smartphone. Uh, but this was a briefcase sized tape recorder, literally tape reels of tape of, um, of uh, Mylar tape. And, but it was portable because it was battery powered. And I remember seeing the battery and it looks like the battery that's in my electric bike right now. Uh, anyway, what he did is he thought, well, let's take this out on the road. And he went out into Chicago and he started interviewing people with his tape recorder. By the time he was done for the day, he had the next day's stories to tell and to share with other people. Well, eventually he realized that he made topics out of this. So he'd talk about, uh, by, still in that time, people had the memories of World War II and how their families and their lives were impacted about it. So he did a book on World War II. He did a book on the, what at the time and still from an artistic perspective is referred to as the modern era that period, uh, 1950s and uh, early 1960s, post-war period through the early 1960s. And he, he, if I remember correctly, he was up uh, before he passed away, up to 20 books, all based on his ability to interview people and have them tell their stories and then turn that into books. And that's a pretty good model. It's part of what we do with our creative uh, campaign framework, right? If you start with a, uh, a, a live stream, you can go from there to a podcast, from a podcast to a, 
uh, blog post. And if you happen to be interviewing people, well, then that becomes a book on a special kind of topical area on core entrepreneurs and legacy live streamers. So mm -hmm. uh, it's a good it's a good little model for us. That's right. Uh, so what are some examples of what not to do as a guest? Uh, have you had people in the past that yeah. you've had to interview? Well, that don't were draw your gun and or... point it at your the interviewer's yeah. head. Well, That's one. I most of mean. the interviews nowadays are yeah, not even in person. But, uh, <laughs> That's right. Other than that. So, so what not to do? Um, it's harder for me to explain what not to do as a, because it, it's all the things that I want you to do. don't do the things that I've asked you to do. Not, is that right? What? Am I saying that right? No. <laughs> it's easier for me to tell you what to do than it is to tell you what not to do. Okay. Well, how uh, about some examples of people who were difficult to work with or not specifically people, but maybe traits that yeah, they had. Uh, so there's a trait. It's like a good, and forgive me for, this may sound a little misogynistic, but it's my experience, right? So one of the ways uh, that I always measured a dinner date with uh, a person of the opposite gender is whether or not they could hold up their end of the conversation during the dinner date. I know that may sound very trite, but it's not much of a dinner date uh, if they can't hold up their end of the conversation. And what I try to do, of course, is make sure I can hold up my end of the conversation, whatever it is. Well, that's true for a guest that you invite. If they can't hold up their end of the conversation, it is going to make for a terrible interview. And so that means not only do they have to be prepared, not only do they have to be uh, not necessarily an expert, but they have to know the subject matter. So if you invited a guest to come on and talk about their business that they're starting, that their second career that they're starting over 50, and they can't explain that, or they haven't thought about it, or they haven't been asked the questions that would lead them to think about it, then that makes for her. They can't hold up their end of the conversation. And uh, you end up with a lot of yeses and no answers. Of course, you're trying to avoid that by not asking questions that would result in a yes or no answer. But you can tell within the first few questions. And, and, and your first reaction is, oh, my goodness, they're not going to be cooperative. There is a big difference between an uncooperative guest, somebody who doesn't want to be there, somebody who doesn't want to talk to you, somebody who was uh, put out by the fact that you made them show up at 7 o'clock mountain time, nine o'clock their time. So you can always tell though that kind of guest that just doesn't want to be there. And I usually do them the favor of getting it done as quickly as I can, because I can, I can see that. Uh, and, and not that they're grateful, but they're like, Oh God, I'm like, that's over, you know? Um, so that's one thing, but I, it's more difficult when you have a guest that you really want to give, you want to give them the opportunity to be telling their story, whether it's, whether it's a story about their experiences in Bosnia or their story about them at age 55 deciding to start a new chapter in their lives. Um, and they just don't know how to do it. And they're not comfortable or they're not comfortable doing it or they're, they're, they haven't gotten past the fact, you know, you made one of these great changes in your life where you said to my, yourself, oh, I'm an introvert. So how do I go forward from here? Right, because you can't you you don't go from being an introvert to an extrovert. That doesn't happen. You go from being an introvert to someone who recognizes that there are certain things that you're not comfortable with, but that shouldn't prevent you from being a guest on the live stream with hundreds of people watching. Right, that's not 
that to me is an introverted situation. That an introverted situation is when you uh, walk an introvert into a uh, rowdy trade show, you know, and they're going like, okay, this is just way too much to absorb. So the 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 one the the guest uh, that that doesn't want to be there, I guess is one. Don't don't be that guest. If you don't want to be there, don't be there. Tell the do yourself a, do yourself and the host a favor, saying, you know what, I don't really like doing this, or I don't like you, or I don't like your whatever the reason is. Just say no. Just say no, right? But like like drugs, just say no. <laughs> Uh, and then the second kind of guest that agrees to be there, but obviously isn't either prepared educationally, right? Knowledge, knowledgeably, or emotionally, right? I, I don't. It's not that I don't want to be here. I don't know what to do now that I'm here. I can't hold up my end of the conversation and not willing to admit admit it. So they agree to be there, but then when you're there, you realize they can't hold it up. So you spend a lot of time being. Uh, not just a host, but kind of a nosy, let's talk some more, you know, you, it, it, you, you turn into a kind of a jerk of a host mm -hmm. trying to carry them through. Um, and so what I've learned to do is end it as peacefully and quietly and quickly as I possibly can without embarrassing uh, the person any, any further. So, so the, the guest that doesn't want to be there or the guest that, uh, that, isn't prepared to be there, can't hold up their end of the conversation. That's what not to do. Be prepared to hold up your end of the conversation. Like I'm doing now. You ask me a question. I can talk for 20 minutes. Yeah. So uh, we want to bring up that on Tuesday, we sh had a show where we talked about the technology that would be uh, best for a person to have in place if they are starting to seek out interviews on podcasts and live streams. So uh, can you Do tell you people a little up? bit about that so that they can go watch that if they have a, an interest in setting up a home studio uh, so that they can quickly be prepared for uh, an interview, whether that's on something like the morning news or good morning America or uh, their favorite podcast. So one of the things that as a guest you have to be able to do is to have the technology available so that you can be a good guest because fewer and fewer interviews are done face to face. They're done over technology mm -hmm. and the technology can be everything from zoom to what we're using tonight's stream yard. And that should be your expectation from this point forward, that if you're invited to be a guest uh, or you're invited to participate uh, as the interview subject in an interview, that it's going to be done. Uh, Unless it's a no local news show of some sort. Even the local news shows. I mean, we did a couple of local news shows as the Fen Treasure Hunt came to an end. And even they were going like, hey, just we'll, yeah, we'll send you a link, right. you know. So, well, that and, was during the pandemic. Well, it is, but I think that's the new model. I think people realized that's just easier than trying to well, schedule. Sure, sure. So, but, so it's good to be prepared for that. Yeah. So let me show you what we recommended. And, and, and this is going to be relatively easy. I'm going to do this real quickly because that's not what necessarily this uh, no, but shows about. We, like but, I said, we did do a show on Tuesday that they can uh, get more in-depth information from. Um, but we do have an Amazon storefront where we have a kit of all the uh, equipment that we recommend. And of course you don't have to get all of it, but any pieces that you are currently missing, 
uh, and you need or need replacing, uh, you could replace them with the pieces. So the let me share this screen recommend. with you. So this is uh, amazon.com slash shop slash a gypsy's kiss. I'm going to post that in there so you guys uh, that guys can see it. I'll pop that up for Dale in just a minute. All right. So when you go there, uh, there's uh, there's uh, different um, kits, packages, kits that you can do. Mm -hmm. And um, the one that Shelly set up. Home studio is the, uh, is the home studio kit. Or is it right there? All right. Uh, and that includes these items. Uh, you can buy, if you, you need a new computer, fine. Get a new computer, a new monitor. Uh, this, the, the basic kit I would recommend getting is this ring light, this headset, and this camera. And uh, we had a lady ask me, what's the cost of that? So 150 bucks. But that with your laptop and you, the, so the basic requirements are you have to have a computer and that computer needs to be connected to the internet uh, on something other than a drop telephone line, right? You need, you need a high speed internet service and high speed means minimum, you know, uh, 10, 10 megabytes, 10 megabod, uh, either way. That's, that'll be plenty enough for it. Uh, but with those three things, that light, that headset and that camera, you've got the minimums required to do a credible live stream. We recommend a headset that looks like this, that has the headphones and the microphone attached with it. That saves you a whole set of problems of A, connections, B, dealing with things like echo, C, turning your head away from the microphone, a lot of other things. Don't, this, the, the, the headset we're wearing right now are $200 headsets. The one that we recommend is this uh, audio, uh, one audio a 71 it's uh, 32.99 we own two of them we have tested them we like them a lot um, and they'll work uh, so that the person who's interviewing you as a guest uh, will hear you perfectly you'll hear them perfectly there'll be no echo no feedback and it's easy because all you have to do is plug it into your laptop or your computer yeah, so if you want any further information on that or the setup, uh, just go to our the, the podcasting and live streaming channel from Tuesday, and you can see that video. Yeah. So tell me, Toby, what do you enjoy most about interviewing people? So there, uh, there are a couple of things. Number one, it is rare that I conduct an interview that isn't associated with a uh, a bigger project, right? We don't, you and I don't, and, and I never have done interviews that are just standalone interviews for just for the sake of interviewing, right? Right now we're doing interviews because it's part of our business, because it's part of our live streaming and podcasting uh, that we do, but so the, the first thing that I, I like about it is that it is always in the context of something that is greater than that single interview. Uh, and because of that, then it is likely greater than you. So you're as you talk, have these conversations with your interview subjects, you're continually learning about whatever this the grander thing is. You're getting more knowledgeable uh, about it. I mean, like I said, 
I could talk to you about the 1960s. I didn't grow up in California. I didn't even know until 2012 that there had been a 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill. But if you want to talk about the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill, the impact on California, the impact on the environmental movement in the United States, I can talk your ear off on that subject. And I have the direct experience of having interviewed 30 people who were directly involved mm-hmm. in that event. Mm-hmm. So I got all the details and they shared and their photos. The yeah, about the 48-hour film project. Exactly. And making a film in 48 hours. So, right. Because I interviewed a lot of people on that topic. So right. I get and, that. And so you got to be an expert in that. So that's one of the cool things about it. The second thing about it goes back to the, sent, the rules of sentient selling. And that is the more you listen to someone, the more – um, uh, engaged they become with you as a person. And so you develop a lot of relationships that you may not have otherwise developed. I mean, I, I whenever Janet says, let's go back to California and we'll uh, uh, visit the, the uh, Greenspans, it was a couple that were activists that she had known. They, we stayed in their house whenever we were in the Ventura County area. And it's I could go back there tomorrow. Uh, I could call them and say, I'm going to be back in town for three or four days and they'd invite me to stay at their house, you know? So there's a lot of that interaction that results in uh, some sense of bonding. Uh, so that's the, the second thing. The first thing is that amazing amount of learning. I'm, I know more about topics that I never imagined uh, private banking, you know, from that conference that we did mm-hmm. uh, roofing, mm-hmm. you know, from that conference and interviews that we did. So, um, so teachers yeah. unions, the teachers union. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's flip that around. What do you enjoy most about being a guest, being the interviewee? So, uh, anybody who's watching this should know by now, as I'm, as Shelly is interviewing me on this topic, uh, I love talking. I love talking about what I know. And because I'm 72 and I've led, led a very, uh, diverse life. I know a lot about a lot of things. I can talk on a lot of topics. Uh, and when I get asked the question, it gives me the opportunity. The hard part is to know for me is to know when to stop uh, because I could just talk about it forever. Um, and I think that's the most fun, especially if it's something I'm interested in. If you want to talk about sand, I love talking about sand. I know that sounds crazy, but I love talking about sand and I could do it for hours. So when somebody gives me that opportunity by asking me questions about it, um, it makes me feel good. And again, I become engaged with them as somebody showing an interest, Mm -hmm. you know, in you and and your thoughts and being honest and open about it, that it isn't just like, I got to interview this guy. So I know that you were interviewed on a podcast. I think it was last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cat. Uh, sisters in service. Right. And uh, so what did, what did you, what value did you receive from being a guest on, on that podcast? So the value was in the angle that she took on it. So her angle was based on her. This is the title of her program is sisters in service. And I had to ask her, I'm not a sister here. Right. Why are Mm -hmm. you asking me? And she said, because you had an interesting uh, story that has a basis in the time that you spent in the service because she had, we had talked about it before that. And so most of the questions she asked were evolved not only around my service time, how I got there, 
you know, why I, why I quit college and joined the military. She wanted to know that story, why I volunteered for things and how I ended up in Vietnam. Not one, one tour, but two, you don't, you weren't required to do more than one. And so, so she weren't required to go to Vietnam. Yeah, that's true. That's, <laughs> like if I had, if I hadn't volunteered, I would have ended up in London, Paris, Rome, or one of the, one of the big embassies in Europe. Um, but what you wanted to know after that was what impact did that have on you? How did it affect the rest of your life? And I don't, uh, I, I probably shouldn't say this. Well, let me say this a different way. For me, the time that I spent in the service made my life before the service better because I was able to reconcile my father's death and how I felt about that. And it made my life after the service better because I was a different and better man uh, coming out of the service than I went in. Mm -hmm. Not that I was a... So she helped you to explore that as an inflection point? As an inflection point. And I always knew that it was kind of an inflection point for mm -hmm. me. There were there were several, you know, in, when you're as old as I am, you've had more than one. Mm -hmm. uh, but I tend to focus on that period after leaving the agency and forming my own business and raising a family in Washington, D.C., uh, but she brought back that one and I had to, you know, as I brought it back, I mean, it was not that I'm unaware of it, but I was made very aware of what impact that service time had on my life before the service, as well as my life after the service. And it, that's what made it such a great conversation. And of course, because she spent 20 years in the service she knew what it was like. She could, she could ask those questions. Mm -hmm. uh, not that, was it too hard? No, it, it wasn't. It, those weren't the questions. The questions were, how did you feel while you were there? What, what did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? How did it change your life after that? What impact did it have on, you know, your, those kinds of things. So it was, it was a great conversation. And it also, you know, if, if nothing else, you should walk away from any, um, any opportunity as a guest to learn more about yourself, right? Just because people are asking you the questions and sometimes you haven't thought about the answers. So when they ask you the questions that cause you to have to think about the answers, you should walk away from that going like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I guess I was a better person. You, you know, I, I knew that my military service had made me a better man after, but we talked about what it meant to me from the life before. Mm -hmm. And the, then that was the reconciliation inside myself uh, of my father's death. Um, and so I learned something that I probably, that had it not been for that conversation, I wouldn't have thought about. Right. I'm mm -hmm. focused on right now. Yeah. And the only thing that takes away my focus are the people, something to do with the people that I care about, new babies, new grandbabies, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like uh, interviews such as podcasting or live streaming interviews are a prime opportunity for us to be asked the kinds of questions that we might be asked um, very rarely. Uh, we wouldn't be asked by, very often by family members, for instance, your daughter, until her son was doing a, uh, a, a report on Vietnam and, and, and he was able to come to you and ask you those questions. And she listened into the answers. Until then, she had no she reason had no or 
or idea yeah. about what you'd gone through. So it was a it was a learning experience, and I think the the opportunity that is uh, presented when we have a podcast or a live stream and we get to ask those uh, questions of somebody, it's it's a uh, it's a learning for both parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it is my uh, opinion that given the opportunity to be invited as a guest for an interview, if it's a podcast, a live stream, or somebody's writing a book, do it. Uh, if for no other reason, if, if for not just the reason to provide them the information that they're looking for, uh, but to learn a little bit about, more about yourself and how you felt about those uh, situations. Yeah. I didn't, when, when I started the whole um, uh, Stories of the Spill uh, documentary, I had no idea I had uh, any feelings about the importance of the protecting the California coast. Mm -hmm. No idea. But by the time I left, I was a rabid <laughs> California Coastal Protection Act kind of person. Yeah. Like, I feel that way. Yeah. I mean, I remember going up to, uh, specifically, uh, taking Jason and my drone and going to a place called, it was in Northern California. And it was like t Tuna Ranch or something like that. And it was the only place on the California coast where... Um, where you could own beach front prop beach property, not beach front property. And the reason was it had been grandfathered in the, the property had been purchased before the protection act and they were able to maintain it. So you have, you go up there and you can see, but they have these funny little requirements that every hundred yards, they have, there have to be an undeveloped area that is open to the public. Mm -hmm. uh, so it has all these strange things, but it's the only place along the California coast, in this case, Northern California, as opposed to like Santa Barbara's Southern California, that, uh, that where people can literally own part of the beach. And they do. And, um, and so you go like, this is so different from every place else. You can't own the beach in California. As a matter right. of fact, that family that I told you about where we stay, when they, we go to visit them, the back of their house is uh, opens up to the beach all, all the way to the ocean. And that's not their property. People right. go out there and they, they can't, like, a, like an old man yelling at people to get off my lawn, they can't say, get off my beach. They, mm -hmm. You can't do that. So not in California anyway. That's good. That's good. Um, so that's, I think, uh, speaks to the results the guests can get from the podcast appearances is to learn more about themselves, to be able to express their expertise and uh, improve their visibility and credibility. Anything else? I, I think that's it. I think one of the things that you have to accept, you, I, I wouldn't want to go to a podcast to be a guest on a podcast or a live stream, if I didn't feel somehow or the other, it was going to benefit me in one or more ways. And I, I, I suppose it could just be personal. I'm very flattered at the fact that you invited me to speak on this. But if I'm a 50 plus year old business person and I'm trying to build a business, I want to make sure I get the opportunity to talk about what I'm doing with my business mm -hmm. and promote it, create some visibility for myself, create hopefully as you answer the questions that the uh, host is asking you, create some credibility for yourself. And one of the things that I know you recommend in the ebook that you wrote, uh, that was make sure you come ready with some sort of uh, call to action, some, right. some sort of freebie. Right. 
Why don't you talk about that just a little bit? Well, sure. And that's available uh, if you're interested. It's sort of a great checklist of all the things you can do to prepare yourself to be a guest on a podcast or a live stream. Um, it's got a lot of great information in it. And it's important. Uh, one of the things that's mentioned in here that if you are going to be on a podcast or a live stream and you have a book or a free uh, training or a webinar or something that you want to invite the audience to, you need to make sure that the host is okay with that. Some hosts don't want any uh, promotions during the show uh, going on, and some are okay with it and will even uh, encourage it. So that's something you'll need to explore with each host uh, if that's something that they do. Now, of course, you can uh, do your research and check out that podcast in advance. And if they never allow that sort of thing and you only want to be on shows where you mm -hmm. can promote your book or your free course or whatever it is, then just don't don't apply to be on that podcast. Right. If you want a copy of this, go to, you'll see it in on the screen, podcast star zero one. That's not one, it's zero one dot agkmedia.studio. And you can get a copy of this and it'll explain a lot of the things that we talked about tonight and how to be a great uh, guest on any podcast or live stream you, how to get on books. which you've been invited to uh, mm -hmm. speak. So make sure you uh, take advantage of that. Also, it's been, it's been scrolling by. On so the, if um, people want to be a guest on our show, Messages and Methods, what should they do? They should go to, and I'm going to put that link up here, right there, journey.messagesandmethods.com. And uh, we have a process that helps you learn how to be a great guest on our show. Uh, you'll get to see three very, or four, three, four, three very short videos that we made. Uh, Shelly walks you through the process and then asks you to fill out a couple of things, applications, the release, schedule the interview, uh, because they're every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Shelly also added this uh, video. Is it a video or a podcast with Jenna? That That's a podcast. Yeah, where she talks about telling personal stories uh, because one of the things that makes a guest interesting is um, is telling, being able to tell those um, personal stories. If you don't have a call to action, if you don't have a podcast star kind of ebook, you can go here and there's a nice little video on YouTube about how to develop an opt-in and a call to action that you can take with you uh, when you go to your show. And it is rare that a, a guest, or I'm sorry, a host will tell you, oh, I'm sorry, we don't allow that. They like that. That means uh, that their uh, audience has gotten a freebie uh, for the night. And then finally, you need to test your tech. And what we tell our guests is if you test your tech and you find out it's not working, give us a call. We'll schedule a, an hour with you and we'll walk you through the tech. We have a lot of experience with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, lastly, if you are interested in booking yourself onto different podcasts, one of the places you can go is Facebook. There are many groups there. Uh, that are made up of podcasters and they swap back and forth. Uh, they collaborate, network. And one of those is our Facebook group, Leveraging Your Content. We encourage people to join that group if they're over 50, they're encore entrepreneurs and legacy live streamers, and they want to interact with other people who are live streamers and podcasters and bloggers, and they want to help uh, collaborate with each other, 
lift each other up and promote each other's uh, podcasts. Uh, so it's a great place to join. And uh, we hope that you will. I think, uh, I think that's a good place to get a start, you know, mm -hmm. get started with the whole idea of uh, being a participant. And I, I think there's uh, one of the other side benefits. I mentioned this in one of the clubhouse rooms that I was in the other day. One of the benefits of uh, being a guest on a podcast or a live stream is it gives you a sense of what it feels like to be on a podcast and live stream. And if you ever get to the point where you want to start your own podcast or live stream, you, it this enables you to dip your toe uh, in the water without doing a lot of damage. I mean, just being a guest, you have to have the technology. It's the same technology to be a guest as it is to be a host, except you're going to use a platform like we're using uh, or StreamYard. We have the $50 a month version of StreamYard, which to me, is the best $50 a month I spend on anything because of the amount of time it saves me, but they have a free version. So you could actually start your own live stream if you had a YouTube channel and a free StreamYard account. Uh, and you had the, the equipment that we suggested when we showed you our Amazon stream. What are you looking for? Puddles. <laughs> There's puddles. There's your puddle. Oh, yeah. That's uh, the StreamYard duck. <laughs> so... Pedals. They have their own. Uh, they have their own stuffed toy. This streamyard merch. Merch. Gotta yeah. love the merch. Yeah. When's my shirt coming? By the way. Uh, I, you know what? I got a message from Zazzle, and it was shipped. Okay. Cool. So you'll you should have it by early next week, I imagine. Okay. Maybe uh, I can wear it on Fourth of July. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. All right. What else? That's all I have for tonight. All right. Thanks for joining us tonight. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Livestream Coaching with Shelly Carney and Toby Eunice. Please subscribe, leave a great review, and comment with questions or ideas for future shows. Share our podcast with your family and friends and discover how you can become a creative campaign producer at agkmedia.studio or join our Facebook group, Leveraging Your Content. <laughs>